Welcome to the European Greens podcast, where we talk about the way forward to a greener and fairer Europe, together with green leaders and activists. The European Greens are a European political party that brings together national parties sharing the same green values, like democracy, feminism, support of LGBTQ+, and climate action. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, and together, let's green our future. and welcome back to a new episode of the Green Talking Heads about COP26. In today's episode, our host will be climate campaigner Rihanna Johnston. She is joined by two key figures of the European Greens family who were highly present during the two very intense weeks of COP26 in Glasgow, Aras Tinkinen and Terry Lettonen. Aras is a committee member of the European Green Party and has been following COPs for many years already. He'll be giving us a perspective on the negotiations and why there are only a small block in bigger climate action. Terry is a green politician. She is the state secretary at the Environment Ministry of Finland. She shares with Rihanna her perspective on what is actually at stake at COP from a national perspective. COP26 is a two-week intense global conference seen by many around the world as the last opportunities to setting our targets straight in order to stay below 1.5 degree global temperature rise, decided six years ago during COP21. This year in Glasgow, all countries were asked to update and present their national determined contributions to remain in line with that target. Together with Terry and Oras, Rihanna discussed the key elements of the final negotiations of COP26 with the focus on climate finance and the historical responsibility of the Global North towards the Global South, the Paris Agreement's targets, and the importance of phasing out fossil fuels. Here's the conversation. Enjoy. So, Oras, uh, thanks for being here. We're still in the blue zone of COP26, and it's the Friday, which should have been the final day of, of COP, um, but it's looking like that may not be the case. And I think the question that everyone is probably asking, um, whether they're here at COP on Friday or listening to this next week, um, what's kind of the, what's our thoughts? What are our feelings? What's the, the takeaway? And, and how do we think that COP26 has ultimately gone well, like you indicated, we don't know yet the results of the actual intergovernmental negotiation. So at this point, uh, it's a bit of a guesstimate. But I would unpack the results of the COP uh, and put them basically in three baskets. First, you have all these uh, improved commitments coming from different governments, uh, saying that they will either cut emissions more than they had planned earlier by 2030, or they will reach net zero by 2050 or at, at some later date. And looking at those, those are already going to take us quite a bit closer to our real target, which is uh, limiting global heating uh, to 1.5 degrees. So from that perspective, you could say that Glasgow has already been a success to some degree. Of course, not enough, but at least uh, in the right direction. Then secondly, we've seen a number of initiatives coming from both governments and uh, what are sometimes called non-state actors, which is basically everyone else but governments, um, announcing different measures, uh, coordination, cooperation on climate action in various fields, be it steelmaking or electric vehicles or phasing out uh, fossil fuel production. And again, those, while not enough, are again taking us a bit closer to the uh, 
the actual goal of limiting global heating to tolerable levels. And then finally, we have the, uh, the intergovernmental negotiations that are still going on. And at this point, it seems that we have a pretty good chance of finishing the Paris Agreement rulebook, which is what we wanted from Glasgow. And there might be some interesting statements, interesting um, um, pieces uh, of text shared by these 200 governments that could take us, again, a little bit forward. And I think the challenge of looking at the result is always that you can say that it's glass half empty or glass half full. Of mm-hmm. course, from the point of view of tackling the climate crisis, which is super urgent, uh, we should be doing much more than we are doing either in Glasgow or elsewhere. And then again, I've been uh, following these negotiations for quite some time. If I look back today, we are so much further ahead than we were just two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. So you can take either perspective, but I would argue that Glasgow has taken the world a bit further again in tackling the climate crisis. Yeah, it's interesting that you use the half full, half empty glass analogy, because I think that's probably how a lot of people who have been here at COP have been feeling generally, both also with the COP itself and some of the organization around it. Um, What are some of the interesting statements that you're thinking of? I I think um, maybe you're thinking of the fossil fuel inclusion. Um, Maybe you can expand on that a little. Sure. So what might surprise many people who have not been attending these COPs forever is that even though we are talking about tackling the climate crisis, actually the governments have never made explicit mentions of fossil fuels in the history of climate negotiations. And now, possibly for the first time, we might get the governments to acknowledge that we need to phase out coal and we need to phase out fossil fuel subsidies. Now, you could say that, well, G20 has said that before, which is true, but uh, it's good to remember that here under the UN settlement, we have all the governments of the world. So we have 200 governments, we have oil producers, we have coal producers, we have countries like Saudi Arabia, we have uh, uh, countries that are very deeply embedded into this fossil fuel economy. And if all of those can agree that the direction of travel is clear, we need to phase out fossil fuels and we need to phase out fossil fuel subsidies, again, I think that's a good signal. What we would want, basically saying, phase out all fossil fuels, phase out fossil fuel subsidies as soon as possible. We are not likely to get there, but um, again, it's a step uh, in the right direction. So if we have at least that like that step forward success of having fossil fuels directly mentioned uh, in the text, is that going to be legally binding on countries? Is that a way for us to hold them accountable to that? Um, it will not be legally binding. Um, so it is definitely not as strong as we would want, and we can talk about how to get further. But it is also something that all of us who are struggling on a daily basis to move our governments, to move our businesses, it's something we can refer to. We can say that, look, your government signed up to this. You, You agreed already that we need to phase out coal. We need to phase out fossil fuel subsidies. What are you doing about it? And I think one of the challenges when looking at these different COPs is that I think people may put a bit too much hopes on one single meeting. Whereas I would say that it is an important but just one part of a much bigger puzzle. So whatever we can do in two weeks every year, hopefully 
will help us quite a bit in our bigger struggles. But then comes the day after the COP. And then we need to continue on the very same issues. So if governments commit to to uh, phasing out fossil fuel subsidies, then the next day we need to go to our governments and say, look, you still have fossil fuel subsidies. You need to do something about it pretty quickly. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it was also something that was brought up earlier this week that maybe um, that the the next months now post-COP will actually also be very crucial for keeping up the pressure and not letting this climate topic sort of uh, like, okay, cool, we did that, been there, done that, uh, and moving on, but rather keeping the pressure up. Um, What can we expect now uh, from EU institutions and also from our national EU governments uh, and, and how can we be also holding them accountable or keeping that pressure up? Well, I think the big challenge for the EU is that it is such a slow animal. Um, when you start the process, it takes a good two or three years uh, before you get to the finishing line, which means that basically whatever we do in the EU, it's often a bit outdated when it's finally adopted. So, for instance, if you look at the targets that were adopted under the European climate law, they are not compatible with limiting global heating to 1.5 degrees. And now if Glasgow is making a very strong appeal to, to governments to really step up the game and uh, upgrade their emission commitments, that also applies to the EU. And we, then we need to start the discussion, what, what can we actually do? Because we have this ongoing process we ha- and we have already adopted our targets. And I think there, there's a couple of things we can do for sure. One is that we are currently in the EU debating the uh, the so-called Fit for 55 or we would like to call it fit for 1.5 package, which is supposed to implement the uh, the targets for 2030 and uh, climate neutrality by 2050. Now, we don't need to stop there. The package could actually deliver bigger emission reductions and faster if we so wanted. So I think for us in the EU, the struggle for the next uh, one or two years is really to push the package as far as possible beyond just 55% emission reductions. Then the other thing I think is that sooner or later we need to come back to these targets set in the European climate law. I'm not sure when the political window is likely to be open for that, but regardless, that time will come sooner or later and we need to be prepared for that and we need to make sure that people understand that it's not enough and we need to do more. How about at the national and local levels as well? Because, I mean, of course, we have Greens in government increasingly, uh, and also many local councillors or regional governments, and they might be able to move a little faster in some cases. Absolutely. And it depends uh, on the country, of course, because the circumstances are quite different. But just coming back to the issue of fossil fuel subsidies, even in the countries where the Greens are in government, basically all of them still have very large fossil fuel subsidies. So there's clear, clearly some homework uh, for the Greens to do when we are in positions of, of power. Uh, the same goes uh, for Germany, of course, now that we are hopefully getting the, the Greens in the government. The German uh, coal phase-out date of 2038 is ridiculously late, and it's absolutely not aligned with the Paris Agreement targets. So we need to uh, clearly uh, change that as well. Um, then I think... One important issue is climate finance. We haven't uh, discussed yet at all, Um, but the EU governments, by and large, are 
the wealthiest and the richest in the world. And we have this really big shortfall in international climate finance. It is true that of the climate finance that has been mobilized so far, EU governments have actually, and the European Union as, has, as a whole, have deliv delivered a relatively large share, but it's not enough. So we need to also get the EU governments, the EU institutions, the Commission, to increase our international climate finance. And we need to make sure that it is the right type of finance. We need to make sure that it's mostly grant-based rather than loans. We need to make sure that it goes uh, to the most vulnerable countries and communities, the poorest countries, uh, the island states, uh, the indigenous peoples, and we need to make sure that adaptation and loss and damage uh, are also included in the package and not only reducing emissions. One of the questions that was brought up this week, just speaking with a lot of different people, was um, whether whether we think there's also a future still for COP, for, for these meetings, um, particularly next year, it's going to be in Egypt, uh, which will kind of have its own uh, host of, of logistical problems as well. Um, and that increasingly, we've seen a lot of civil society action happening outside of the COP, especially this time uh, with the People's Climate Summit that's been taking place for the last days in Glasgow. Um, and I wonder also what your thoughts are there, whether... Um, yeah, how, how we can also continue to build coalitions also outside of COP um, and what those could look like. I, uh, I fully understand uh, if people take a fairly skeptical uh, look at the COPs uh, for many reasons. But then I think my first question would be, if we did not have these annual meetings, I mean, what should we have instead? Because, like we've seen now in Glasgow, these COPs have served as a platform for higher climate ambition, for more climate initiatives, for more climate action. Granted, not enough, but uh, without this meeting, without this kind of focal point, I don't think we would have seen nearly as uh, much. So I think it's easier to criticize the COPs for all the shortcomings, and there are many, it's much more difficult to come up with a good uh, alternative that would deliver even better results. But uh, it is definitely important that we don't just focus on the COPs, that's just two weeks out of 52 every year. Mm -hmm. And we need to put more emphasis on what is, what is happening between the COPs. And I think there's at least a couple of types of alliances I would like to see more of. One is... Uh, alliances between the global north and the global south. And one of those that has been pretty successful in the past is the so-called high ambition coalition. It has, on the one hand, the European Union and some other countries of the global north that have had fairly or relatively progressive uh, climate policies. And then it has the most vulnerable countries of the global south. And that combination is really powerful at the negotiations. So that type of North-South alliances are uh, we would need to see more of in the future. And then secondly, um, I think it's not easy, but what I think we need to do more is to build these alliances kind of across uh, the most common boundaries and also kind of 
sometimes going out of our comfort zones. So um, it is very easy for, let's say, the environmental and development community to work together. And it's luckily relatively easy these days for these different NGOs and indigenous peoples to come together. And we've also seen, seen some promising uh, alliances with the trade union movement, for instance. But um, what about religious communities? What about progressive businesses? Um, what about farmers? So the challenge with the climate crisis is that we need to move so incredibly quickly and we need to be able to implement these system-wide changes that you can't really do those with a very small marginal group of people, but you need very broad alliances. And um, I think there's a lot of work to do in that regard. Right, yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And we also saw, because uh, you mentioned unions, uh, well, there was a, a Scott Rail, a rail union strike announced, which they ended up delaying, I think. Um, but also one of the other local unions in Glasgow was on strike and attended the march with Fridays for Future last week, uh, which is nice to see that that coalition building happening. Um, one of the speakers also brought up being in solidarity with health workers uh, around climate. And I think I think you're right. There's so many overlaps. And this is where that term maybe intersectionality, that there's so many different issues that connect within climate um, and that we need to kind of, yeah, like build this bigger movement outside of our maybe traditional ideas of what that is. Indeed. Um, but I would just like to caution that... Um then we need to be mature enough to have some sometimes quite uncomfortable discussions. Absolutely. Because the broader the alliance, the bigger the disagreements on some issues get. And then we need to learn to live with that. And we need to be okay with not agreeing 100% on everything. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a really good point. And maybe also... Uh yeah, what the, the thing that makes it so tricky, really. That's why it hasn't happened yet, maybe. Um, but then maybe we can kind of come to, I guess, the other question that most people will have is, um, you know, as Greens, as activists, as um, Europeans, how can we now kind of move forward from COP um, over the next months, over the next year, um, and continue to be pushing for climate action, to be building those coalitions, um, what's kind of our, our path forwards? Well, I would like to start by saying that the fact that we are even at this point today, even though it's clearly not enough, is largely thanks to the mobilization of young activists, uh, NGOs, you know, all the people that care about climate. The Greens, of course, are very much included in that group of people. And I mean... The frustration is very understandable, but we are also seeing results thanks to that mobilization. And I think people may forget that there is this connection between what happens in politics at the governmental level or international level and the action on the streets and on the ground. So my first message really would be to keep up the pressure and continue building up the momentum and uh, get involved in these movements and, and NGOs that are really doing amazing work. And of course, the youth activists are really uh, uh, at the center of all this. Then secondly, I think, whereas these cops are largely about 
commitments and pledges and uh, initiatives. After the COP, we, re we really need to focus on implementation. And implementation, of course, when it comes to cutting emissions in all sectors of society, but implementation also in adapting to global heating and helping the vulnerable communities and countries do the same. Uh, again, in the international climate finance part. So really being super focused on the implementation of uh, emission reductions and, and, and finance and help and support, I think that's what we need to be doing after the COP for sure. Thanks. Yeah, I think um, as someone earlier this week put it, that I, I don't know how it's been for you, but I think some of the connections that I've made at COP and the conversations with people uh, have been probably one of the best parts, really. Um, so I think definitely to your point on on like continuing to keep the pressure up and keep talking about these issues in the next months is super key. Um, and then, yeah, hopefully that will help us to get the implementation that we very urgently need. Um, do you have any other closing thoughts um, for COP or maybe a takeaway that you'd want people to have, especially in the next weeks as the outcomes will get sort of unpacked and dissected and analyzed by many different views? Well, perhaps just on the nature of COPs. Um, again, I mean, like most people, I too am frustrated and impatient with the progress or the lack thereof at the COPs. But the beauty of the COPs is that these bring together all the countries of the world on an equal or at least somewhat equal footing. So you have the wealthiest and the biggest countries, but you have the tiniest and the poorest countries sitting at the same table. And I don't see that many other places uh, globally where the Chinese leaders and the US leaders and the European leaders have to sit and listen to the indigenous peoples and the, the poorest countries and the, the islands that are about to sink because of uh, rising sea levels and really face what the climate crisis is, is doing, the damage to ecosystems and the people. And I think just that thing alone is worth something, that the most powerful leaders of the world have to face the results of their inactions. So just... A little shout out to the cops. I, I know that they are boring and bureaucratic and they are not delivering fast enough, but um, I, I would argue that they have a role to play also in the future. Thanks. I think that's a really, really good note to end on. Um, thank you for taking the time and good luck with the rest of today and the rest of the um, negotiations and meetings and things. Um, we'll see hopefully soon what the outcome is. Absolutely. And by now I can... Uh, objective, ob objectively say that my cup of tea is empty. <laughs> Super. Good timing then. Thanks, Terry, for joining us here. Uh, we're in the Action Hub at COP26. Just looking at the very nice globe and all of the activists kind of sitting below us. Um, so thanks for taking the time to come out of the, the back rooms of COP uh, to chat a bit. Sure. Thank you for the invitation. Um, yeah, so we wanted to ask you first on kind of your general evaluation of COP, how the negotiations are going. I think that's kind of the, the question on everyone's mind at the moment. I think that the atmosphere is um, good. I think there's a genuine will to 
to look for for solutions and compromises. I think the difficulty is always that there's um, such a somehow this discrepancy of what what people would expect from these kind of meetings when when countries yeah. come together, what they would be doing, uh, and then it, it's maybe not as fancy as that, but. There's important business, which is kind of the technocratic or technical questions about the rule book, about finalizing the rules for the Paris Agreement. Uh, and that would be about the transparency, how countries report on the action and, and so that we can compare basically afterwards. And and on the markets, how if if countries are using carbon markets, how how that works and if we, we want to have good rules. And um, those are basically something that will live with us for a long time and will determine how good the Paris Agreement architecture will be for, for climate. Uh, so even if they're not so sexy, if you like, uh, they're very important for the long term. However, I think for, for, the, for the world, uh, for the people outside, it's really important that this COP and the leaders come together here, that they are able to react to the urgency of, of climate action. And I think this is the the discrepancy we have to move both agendas right and i mean i think one of the things that we've seen especially last week but still kind of um this week as well is pledges by many of the world leaders uh towards um you know reduced emissions or um deforestation limiting that by 2030 uh, net zero finance um but it seems that we haven't really seen a lot of concrete pathways at the national level for for reaching that at least that's what civil society is also reporting um finland is considered to have pretty uh, ambitious climate targets uh, and also policies so maybe you can uh give us some examples of of what some of that actual um concrete policy action could really look like now also after cop for countries to be taking well just to start from the where we came from is is the one and a half degrees goal. We committed in Paris Agreement to pursue uh, one and a half degree warming or limiting warming to one and a half degrees. And we, our climate science pa panel, gave us um, guidance on what that means for Finland. And so our climate neutrality by 2035 target is based on the analysis of our climate science panel. And actually, mm -hmm. in, in order to be in line with the one and a half degree um, goal we need to go carbon negative or, or climate positive thereafter. And that's what we're aiming at. So this is what the government is also looking. We're analyzing what we need to do, where are, how far, what's the gap? So we've been analyzing as a government the, the gap between existing emissions and where do the existing policies and measures take us and what do we need to still add? So this is, and then we've split it between uh, different sectors and we've looked at the different policies that are required. So we need to do, we've decided that we will reduce uh, transport emissions by uh, by half, at least by half, by 2030 compared to 2005. And we have looked into the policies and we have looked at the carrots. Um, so what we can do to to, to support um, electric vehicles, electric uh, transport, uh, bicycles, um, you know, public transport, uh, walking uh, and, and, and cycling and electric cycles. So we're looking at the different um, support measures for the infrastructure and for, for, for consumers. Mm -hmm. And, and then eventually we will also need to look at um, if that is not going to be enough, we will be needing to apply some type of pricing mechanism uh, for for um, heating. Um, we have still some some fossil fuels in our heating system. Um, the, the part of heating that is in the in the emissions trading scheme, the carbon price will drive 
um, most of that out so that that's somehow under control but then we the the, the buildings that are outside the individual heating um, there we have policies to um, support moving from oil um, based heating uh, and and we have support for for energy um, improvements in housing for example super um, since you mentioned carbon pricing and also um, uh, transport uh, and heating in homes and we also I'm not sure if our listeners could hear but in the background we just heard a the chant of climate justice now and so thinking a bit also on how we make sure that these policies are implemented in a fair way um, what's sort of the, the approach there I think that fairness is also why we need to somehow give them give give a bit the view you have to we, we need to look at it and, and tell that let's say we are phasing out coal from our uh, energy system in 2029 this was already said uh, a while ago so basically you have to give a little bit of uh, head notice that this is we, we've now said we you will have we will want to be out of oil heating by early 2030s we give that signal we give the subsidies to go there um also to help uh the transition so it's one thing is to give the signals to the economy to the citizens early enough and then of course we need to find a combination of of, of support and then give the price signal and um, I also think it's important to remember that um, fossil fuels are neither also not cheap. They're not cheap to the atmosphere, but not, neither to consume. It's in Finland, it's also imported uh, energy except for, for peat. And I think it's really also unfair to think that, for example, the, the people that are less well off economically, that they should be relying on the dirty fuels. We, we want them to transition to clean and climate compatible future as well and and then when it comes to for example peat sector that's one of the our domestic fossil fuels and and the use of that uh, energy use of peat is going down uh, fairly rapidly maybe faster than was thought and that is creating some problems of transition and we have as the government we have put quite a bit of money aside to support that sector to so support the people to move to other sectors of activity to support them in uh, in, in transitioning super yeah because you also mentioned fossil fuels and subsidies uh, that's one of the things that i think is uh, that civil society has been calling for that we finally talk about fossil fuels in the text um, of this uh, of this agreement uh, and uh, we just heard today that it, there is a mention of phasing out coal as well as subsidies for fossil fuels in the text, which would be um, a first uh, and kind of a big deal. Um, what do you think the likelihood is that that will stay in the text or could even be strengthened to include other fossil fuels, oil, natural gas, of course? Mm. Um, and, and yeah, and if not, how can we kind of move forward from that? Well, I think... Like you said, it's a first, and I think it's a great first. So I, I'm really happy that it's in the text now. It's put forward, and and let's see. I think there's a lot of pressure to to weaken it. Probably less pressure to to strengthen it. And and obviously, from a green perspective, it could have dates. It could have other fossil fuels. But I think the signals are so important that um, and once you you nail that it has to be phased out. There there has there's an end. Then It'll, the signal is there, then it can be implemented when it put to implementation. I'm, I'm thinking that if if I know that 
there's not going to be fossil oil heating uh, in a in a five years time. Why not change? Why continue for another year if you can change? Uh, so I think that the signals are are super important. I'm not 100% sure if it, that will uh, stay the way, but I I I would still want to be optimistic and think that this is this is a, a cop where where we you know cross that bridge and and get those signals out there. That I mean, yeah, that would be fantastic if that's at least you know, one very concrete outcome mm. of this COP. Um, and as you said before, too, the, the whole issue around um, like who bears the brunt of the fossil mm. fuels and using them is also something that we probably need to communicate more. And I think it's um, something where we can find a lot of solidarity mm. with other groups, mm. with marginalized communities, frontline communities. Um, yeah, I guess then uh, kind of wrapping up slowly and coming to our, our mm. last question. And I think one that also... Um, many of us uh, like in politics in civil society have is how do we move forward from COP whether it's deemed successful whether it's deemed a failure um, you know what does it mean for us in terms of our next steps in terms of next um, advocacy issues uh, and general hopelessness and and, uh, yeah well I think I'm Again, I'm still very hopeful that this also that the, the parties here that we go through because it's important. You mentioned the declarations that countries do. So those are important signals. It's also very important what the parties agree, what countries agree here into the decision text, because that's somehow legally binding, legally binding in this system. So countries are are expected to adhere to, to what they sign up to here. And, and if we agree that we will, from now on, we will look at the achievement or how far, we look at the closing the gap in each conference every year, that there is a call to update the NDCs, the next for the 2030, that already doing 20s, there's a, there's a call for parties to make their NDCs aligned with the one and a half degrees. I think there's many um, elements of the draft text already now that goes actually beyond Paris Agreement. And which is what we need to do, um, because we we said in Paris well below two degrees and pursue one and a half degrees. Now we know that uh, one and a half degrees is already it's it's the, the it's close the opportunities are closing, but it's also that we we really don't want to go beyond that. And I think um, to to get a system of uh, ratcheting up that is even goes beyond what was it in Paris that is certainly uh, a success. And then the real world um, is. We'll have to also trust that these, the real world and, and this process feed to one another. Somehow this process can never be really much more ambitious than the real world. So, um, But these signals here will help, again, push for ambition. And this is where I think the green politicians are, uh, are required to continue this at, at, at all level, at local level, at regional level, at the national level, at the European Union level, in the international negotiation, in different fora. And that's where we have to go. Thanks. Yeah, I, I mean, it's nice to hear a little bit of a, a more hopeful or um, forward-looking uh, perspective as well, because indeed, I think we can't, regardless of the outcome of COP, that's not where much of the action will really happen. And we have to be able to come back from it without feeling completely defeated or um, or, or taking for granted and then kind of letting the climate issue fall to the side. So I think that's 
um, indeed going to be the next month's implementation. Even even if we would get the commitments that we want from countries, it will still depend. The atmosphere will only see it once we're translating it into action. <laughs> yes. Um, super. Well, I think that's a really great note to end on. Um, thanks again for taking the time. Thank you, Rena. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Green Talking Heads. In the meantime, our Green COP delegation has traveled back from Glasgow and we've had the chance to have a look at the final text that was agreed on by all member parties present at COP. Important steps forward were taken as it's the first time the fossil fuels are mentioned in the final text, but lobbyist efforts led to some disappointment. The text on phasing out coal is very weak and the climate justice dimension of the fight against climate change is still largely lacking. There's a lot more to learn, but we hope we have helped you with a first overview of the key points discussed at COP26. And we also hope to have inspired you to explore more and take action. You can check out our climate campaign on the website of the European Greens, for which we will put the link in the description of the episodes. And we're always happy to hear from you, answer any further questions, and to read your thoughts in the comments of wherever you'll be listening to this episode. We are super looking forward to welcome you uh, very soon on our next episode, where we'll be opening a new topic, the future of work. We'll be focusing on forced labor as well as child labor with two brilliant green MEPs, so make sure to be on the lookout for this upcoming episode. Thank you and see you soon. Mm-hmm.